Good morning, everyone. So good to see you guys. Welcome. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico Church Arlington. And as we've said, it is our special honor and privilege to have Doxology Church joining us as well. It's such an encouragement to me um, to see you all to be reminded of God's work and his care for Arlington through you. We don't get to see you guys super often, even though you're in the same city, but we do a lot of the same things at the same time. So we're kind of off doing our separate things. And so just having your presence in here is an incredible blessing to us as a church. It's an encouragement to us. It's a reminder of why we do what we do. We want to see the gospel go out and multiply so that we can spread the good news of Jesus to this city in this context. So thank you. I just wanted to encourage you, like, keep going. Being a church plant is hard. Being a church plant that started just before a global pandemic is probably harder. And so I know everyone is feeling tired who's been deeply involved in ministry, um, in leadership, and as a church plant, everyone is that. And so I'm sure that you all feel in a multiplicity of ways, fatigued and tired. And just know that that tired is a good gospel tired. And we hope that today is just a small way that you can kind of recharge, that God can encourage you to continue the work that you're doing. And so I really hope that you do feel his grace, his presence here, and that encourages you onward. We are in the middle of a series on the book of Galatians, and so I'll kind of try and catch us all up to what is happening in Galatians. Galatians is written by Paul to a group of churches that he planted by preaching the gospel, and there's a little bit of uncertainty under the exact circumstances of how that happened, but almost certainly it was Paul going into these cities that were largely segmented and separated Jew and Gentile, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, bringing Gentile converts to Christianity into these Jewish communities. And there were some problems with that. And so what happened is that some of the Pharisees and the Jewish religious leaders started oppressing Paul. They stoned him. They beat him. And so today we're going to see that part of the context of the origin story of these churches is that Paul was beaten and bloodied for the gospel. And so they took him in and they cared for him and they nurtured him back to health. And as they were doing that, Paul continued to preach the gospel and they came to faith and they grew. And as they grew, they got incredibly confused because these false teachers, these people, these opponents of Paul, who were concerned that the gospel was undermining God's purpose for his people, they started saying, yeah, Jesus is okay. He's the son of God, and he came to save you from your sins, and all that is good and right, but you still have to keep the law. If you really want to be who God wants you to be, if you really want to belong to God, you have to make sure to keep the law. You have to make sure to go back to the Mosaic Covenant. You have to make sure that you are circumcised to ensure that you are really a child of Abraham. And Paul noticed that this was happening, and what he does is he interrupts that with these letters. 
and, or with this letter. And he says, no, that is the law. What I gave you was the gospel. And so in the context of this, Paul is kind of like delineating what is the law and what is the gospel. The law leads to slavery, leads to condemnation, leads to death. The gospel leads to freedom, to sonship, to life, to adoption, to growth in grace. And so he's building out these contrasts and he's showing the Galatians and pleading with them. Don't go back into slavery. And as he continues to talk about that, he kind of answers some objections like, okay, but wait, the law is from God. It's God's law. And so now you're telling us that it's bad. And he's saying, no, 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 it is not bad. How you are using it is bad. Because God gave Israel the law to prepare them for salvation. The first way it did this is it exposed their sin. The law is the holy requirements of God for every person. If you want to be my people, if you want to be in my relationship, in relationship with me, here's what that looks like. You have to reflect this type of character. And so what happens is as you read the law, as you go through the Ten Commandments, as you understand the depth of them, you realize there is no way I can do that. So it prepares you for a savior. It prepares you for salvation. The other thing that the law did was that it pointed forward to Jesus. It carved out some of the specific ways that Jesus was going to fulfill the law. And so it gave the people an anticipation of what their savior would look like. And so when Jesus came, he fulfilled the law. He revealed himself as the lawgiver and the fulfillment of the law, and that you trust in him and what he has done, how he was able to fulfill the law, and not in what you can do. And so that basically catches you up. And so we're just going to be entering into this kind of like debate or this letter from Paul trying to persuade the Galatians back to faith in Jesus alone for their salvation. And we're going to be picking up in chapter 4, verse 8, and we're going to go all the way through 20. I'll go ahead and read it. The words will be up on the screen as well, and we'll dive into it. Formerly... When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I have labored over you in vain. Brothers and sisters, I entreat you, because, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you had have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, 
but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the work of grace that you worked in Paul. We thank you for sending your word to interrupt him on his way to persecute the church, to reveal who you are, the fullness of the gospel of grace. And Lord, in a way that only makes sense to you, you sent him to the most unlikely people, to the Gentiles, to the people that he was most unlike to proclaim this gospel. And so, Lord, I ask that these words would come alive for us this morning, that your spirit would help us to lay hold of the reality of you, you setting your knowledge upon us. And God, that we would never depart from that, that we would never seek to find our salvation in another way, but that you would hold us fast to your gospel. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you guys ever bought something that you were really excited about? Like, you studied it, you researched it, you're like, hmm, this is going to make my life so much better. And then when the Amazon truck drops it off and you open it, there's like a glimmer of hope fulfilled as you unbox it and soak it in. Maybe you're weird and like smell the packaging, smell all the chemicals, just bask in it. And then you use it and it's awesome. Seems like it's working really well. And then like two days in, it breaks and it doesn't work anymore. And you realize that you've just completely wasted your money and you're more frustrated than when you started. It's a pretty universal occurrence. It's regret. It's disappointment. It's hope that is unfulfilled and therefore deferred. And we get really frustrated by that. And I think for a lot of us, that's kind of how we think God feels about us. It's like, we think that God sent Jesus for us He's like, oh man, I have so much hope for these people. Once they know Jesus, they're going to be so much better. They're actually going to bear my image and reflect my glory in the way that I intended them to. And we get really excited about that. And then as we live as Christians, we're still plagued by sin. We still turn back to idols. We get distracted. We get kind of decimated by life. Life beats us down. We get tired. We get sick. We get weak. And all of a sudden, our relationship to God gets called into question. Like, surely God regrets this. How is this a good deal for him? He probably wants to send me back and return me. And this is almost certainly the experience that 
these Galatian Christians, these new converts to Christianity started to feel, especially as they were living in tension with a legalistic people who were very concerned about their external keeping of the law and having a super ordered life, a life where it's like very evident, like, yes, I am righteous. I look really good. And so they opened themselves up to following them. And what Paul tells us here is that they're actually going back into slavery. They're going back into imprisonment. What they were hoping for was like a justified relationship with God. And what they got was condemnation. And so... This morning, Paul's main concern is that these Christians in these churches would persevere in the freedom of grace. Persevere in the freedom of grace. And so what he does is kind of, um, it's not really logically sequential. And so we're going to break the text up into two parts and kind of jump around through it. Because he is just kind of like mixing up things, but it's the same theme. The first thing that we're going to talk about is being free from idols. Being free from idols. So if you are persevering in the freedom of grace, you are free from idols. And then the second thing that we're going to look like is what is the freedom of grace? Like, how do you keep yourself free from idols? How do you receive the grace that God has given you? And so we're going to look at this idea of being free from idols. And in the text, Paul describes idolatry as these weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. And how he describes the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world is very interesting. Because he's talking to Gentiles. So Gentiles are any ethnicity that's not Jewish. And it's in the Roman Empire who worship the Greek pantheon of gods. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying you are worshiping the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. So far, so good. Right? Like the worship of that Greek pantheon that assigned a God to various things and the gods were fickle. They were kind of like just a little bit more powerful humans, but they were really fickle. They were sometimes they weren't very powerful. Um, and so you had to worship the right God in the right way. And it was kind of like this never ending quest to manipulate the gods to get their blessing. And it was just brutal. And ultimately, Everyone was really dissatisfied. But in that system, the virtue that was above all virtues, the way that you could tell that the gods were blessing you was a virtue that they described as felicity. We would say it's happiness, being happy. Being happy is the way that you receive blessing from the gods. And so one of the main ways, the most prominent way to be happy is to feel good. So this is hedonism. It's worshiping a God that will make you feel good. To give you enjoyment. To give you pleasure. To give you satisfaction. So that is one of the idols. That's one of the weak and worthless principles 
is this pursuit of pleasure, this pursuit of happiness that you earn by appeasing the gods. But look carefully at what he says. He says that formerly you did not know God, that's what you were doing. But now that you do know God, you're going back to that? That's interesting, because that's not what they're doing. They're not going back, they're not being tempted or led to go back to the Greek pantheon. Instead, what they're being tempted to is to legalism. It's to finding their righteousness in keeping the old covenant, in being circumcised, in following the Mosaic law, in the festivals and the feasts and the Jewish calendar that he just alludes to by saying that you are worshiping or that you are um, observing days and months and seasons and years. Very different things, seemingly. The pursuit of pleasure in the Greek pantheon and the pursuit of righteousness in the old covenant system. But what he says is that they're the same thing. They're weak and they're worthless. The legalism of the Jewish religion, or at least how they had twisted the religion, sought to produce righteousness and earning a relationship with God. And hedonism of the Greek gods sought to produce an enjoyment of life. And what Paul is saying is that you received the gospel. You received Christ. You trusted in him, and God attributed the righteousness of Christ to you. Can you add to the righteousness of Christ? Can you keep the law better than Jesus? Can you fulfill the law even close to how Jesus fulfilled the law? Are you sinless? How's your motivation? Do you understand that when you trust in Jesus, you receive his credit? So yes, that type of righteousness that you're seeking to earn by keeping the law is weak. And the enjoyment that you think that you get from these temporary pleasures, do they last? Do they give you a meaningful life? Or do they send you on a never-ending quest for more and more and more? And how does that pleasure compare to being adopted into the family of God? The enjoyment that you get from those gods is worthless. Weak and worthless idols. And often for us, for all humans, we kind of like will move between back and forth of seeking to be righteous in what we can do and seeking to find enjoyment or pleasure in what we can bring ourselves. And you see this in society all the time. You can see it, it doesn't matter where you look in society. There's kind of like this going back and forth between I want to, you know, be a moral person and define ethics and live up to those ethics. And that's how I find righteousness. That's how I know that I'm a good person. 
and to kind of like, well, that didn't work, so let's go here. Let's just do whatever we want to do. Let's live according to our best wisdom. Let's take the governor off. Let's take the rules away. Let's just pursue pleasure and see where it goes. Let's at least enjoy life. And so you see this kind of like going back and forth. And what Paul says is that both of these are idolatry. And they're tying you to the principles of a cursed world where you'll never find what you want. And in doing that, you've exchanged it for what you had in Christ. For adoption as a child of God. For his righteousness and his reward. And then Paul says, listen, you haven't gotten there by yourself. You haven't just kind of like naturally wandered back to slavery, to these elementary principles. There are leaders who are taking you there. And so one of the things that idolatry always has leaders, there's always going to be voices that are kind of pulling you back into worship of idols, whatever they are. And so here's what they look like. Paul gives us kind of like a playbook to identify what it looks like for somebody who's leading you, either in, in either way. It doesn't really matter. They do the same thing. And the two things that he says later on in the passage is that these leaders, they're going to make much of you. So one of the ways that you identify these false leaders, these people who are going to lead you astray, lead you out of the gospel of grace and into slavery, is that they make much of you. He says this in, later on in that passage. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. And then he goes on later and says, yeah, it's, like, it's nice to be made much of for a good purpose. But they're, make, they're making much of you for no good purpose. And so just know this, that if you are following someone, and that could be in person, that could be digitally, that could be any type of relationship where you are giving authority to someone, and it just, they, just, they just make much of you. They make a big deal of you. And they just kind of flatter you, puff you up. Oh, you're such a good person. You do so much. You're so gifted. They're just inflating your ego. Be warned. You should be leery of that. It's different than encouragement. Encouragement is something that is true and is good and doesn't actually build up your ego, but encourages you in a good work. But they sound very similar. And ultimately, making much of you for these false teachers, it's manipulation. They're manipulating you with your feelings. They're getting, they're getting you to feel good about yourself because they want you to do something for them. They want to use you. And that's where the second part comes in. They want to shut you out so that you make much of them. So they make much of you, and then these false teachers elevate themselves. Here's how, almost certainly, how this was happening. 
these um, people, these what we call the Judaizers, the ones who are bringing Christians back into the old covenant, they were showing off their righteousness. They're saying, look at how good I am at keeping the Sabbath. Look at the festivals. We have all this stuff memorized. Everything's in order. We do it to a T, and it looks good. And it's good. But what they're doing is they're elevating themselves, what they can do to keep the law. And then the second part of it is that they are using you for their pleasure. They're using you to get something. And that is contrary to the leadership that happens in step with the gospel. So if you're able to identify aspects of that in any kind of relationship you have where you're following someone, you should be very cautious. You should be very cautious. And instead, you should look for leaders that help you persevere in the freedom of grace. We're going to get there. We're going to talk about what that looks like. But first, we have to talk about how to get back out. How to get back out of slavery. If you have found yourself back into idolatry, whether it's legalism or hedonism, how do you get back into the freedom of grace? And the first thing that we have to address is what freedom actually means. Because for us, I think freedom oftentimes we would define as the absence of limits. Like it's basically saying, I get to do what I want to do. Like I can just do whatever I want to do. I don't have anything, any rules. There's no limits. There's nothing tethering me. And that is how we would see freedom. But instead, what freedom is, it's not the absence of limits, but it's finding the right limits to live in. And so we have to talk about freedom first, because that understanding of freedom is really crucial to understanding how we actually exist in God's grace and how that gives us freedom. So we're going to go back to kind of the beginning of the passage and go back to this contrast. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved. But now that you have come to know God, and then Paul corrects the order, or rather, be known by God. So, being known by God is what sets you free. It's what gives you freedom. Being known by God. Once you are known by God, how can you turn back? And so the way out of idolatry is to call to mind, to experience, experience the reality that God knows you. God knows you. Doxology is here, and so we have to talk about Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it's only right. <laughs> so I know when I hear this, and I think about what it means that I am known by God. The first thing that comes to mind for me is the eye of Sauron. It's the light that pierces. It's like a spotlight that kind of hones in and brings you into the presence of Sauron. And now this is a contrasting illustration because God's not like Sauron. (laughs) But in some ways, the idea of the creator of the universe 
an all-powerful and holy God setting his knowledge on you. It's a little terrifying. God doesn't know just the stuff that you want him to know. God doesn't know just the stuff that comes out of your mouth. God doesn't know just the stuff that you do only when other people are watching you. God knows your thoughts. He knows your heart, your motivations. He knows what you do in secret. He knows you because he created you and he knows everything. And so at first, this is terrifying. It creates a panic. This is why whenever an angel or someone who comes directly from the presence of God shows up in um, kind of proximity to a human, they freak out. We get a little scared because we instinctively know, I don't belong here. I don't belong in this knowledge. I've sinned. I'm unclean. But God doesn't know us just as our creator. He certainly knows us as our creator. He knows who you are according to your physical frame, according to the world he has put you in, according to you being man and woman. He knows you, but he also knows you as our redeemer. He knows you in Christ. You see, the knowledge that Paul is talking about here, it's not the knowledge of an abstract God who knows everything or an all-powerful God who's very distant. He's talking about the knowledge of the God of Jesus. The knowledge of the God who sent his son to die for you, to purify you, to love you. And so you see how, how important it is that these Galatians don't go back to the old. Don't go backwards in their faith. It reminds me a little bit of Hebrews and how Hebrews opens, the opening section of Hebrews, where the author is talking about this, this relationship between the old and the new. It starts out Hebrews by saying, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, the law, the old covenant. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent to theirs. God knows you in his son. His law is fulfilled. He knows your sin. And he knows his son's righteousness. And he doesn't see you or regard you according to your sin, but he sees you and he regards you according to the righteousness of Christ. That's what justification by faith means. 
is that the regard of God the Father on you is as he regards the Son. And so there is a freedom in that kind of knowledge. Think about that. The experience of the only opinion in this world that matters. Being affirmed. Confirmed. Brought to reality. In his deep knowledge of you. And in his pleasure in you just as he takes pleasure in his son. That is the knowledge. That is the light that comes down and knows you and transforms you and sets you free. Excuse me. It's our adoption as God's children. And that's the limit that we're made for. That is the context of our freedom. To live as his children in whom he is well pleased. J.I. Packer says that the knowledge of God as one's father is the sum of the faith of the Bible. It's everything. To know that God is your father and that's how he knows you as his child. So a couple questions. Do you treat God as your father in heaven? Is that how you experience him? Or do you still relate to him more as your judge? More as your boss? More as the authority that you have to prove yourself to? More as something that you have to perform for? Okay, if those questions are a little bit too abstract... Does your spirituality, does the assurance of your faith, does it deplete when you're depressed and you can't really get out of bed? Is it impacted by your inability to do a big thing for God? Because you've reached your capacity as a human. Is your relationship with God dependent in any way on your performance? On what you can do, what you can achieve, what you can accomplish, on how it's going at work, on how it's going at home, on how it's going in your dating life? Do you treat God as your father in heaven by loving him, by honoring him, by obeying him as a child? Or do you reject him? Do you seek after your own glory, your own enjoyment? Do you rebel against him? The security that adoption brings us, the relational security, the spiritual security it allows us then to be led in the freedom of grace. Because Paul knows what I think we often don't know, and that this does not happen individually. It's a community project. 
It takes place within the context of a church, in the context of the Spirit indwelling His people, equipping the people to lead and serve each other. And so, how you are led in freedom, in the freedom that grace produces, it probably says a lot about if you are still trapped in idolatry or if you are trusting in God's perfect knowledge of you as a child. So here are the things that Paul points to about here's what it looks like to be led in the freedom of grace. So you can use this as really practical. True leaders, leaders that are leading you in freedom, well, they make much of Christ. That's what Paul does. When he's talking to them about his infirmity, his weakness, I think in the world and in kind of like a normal, um, a normal relationship, in a business partnership, even in a marriage sometimes, unfortunately, in a friendship, when a person is weak, when they are infirmed, when they're a burden, the power dynamic gets flipped. And there's kind of like an expectation of repayment. I scratch your back, so you scratch my back. And what Paul says is when he initially preached the gospel to them, he was in their debt. He was a burden to them. And yet their blessedness, their freedom, a sign of their understanding the beauty of the gospel was that that was their blessedness. So Paul had no reason to elevate himself. And he didn't come back when he was strong and care for them. No. Instead, he said, you received me as Christ. And Christ worked through my weakness. He worked through my infirmity to bring you into the faith. So he made much of Christ. And in making much of Christ... Leaders that are leading you in the gospel, in grace, in freedom, they will bring clarity. They will show you who Christ is. They will reveal God's grace to you. And also, as they're doing that, they will speak truth. Recognizing that sometimes that truth is offensive, that sometimes truth is abrasive. Sometimes you're not going to think more of yourself when you hear truth. But they know that there's freedom attached to it, that it is a grace that God gives us his word. So they'll speak truth. And then the second thing is that they will desire your growth in grace above all else. Paul uses language of a mother in childbirth pains. The idea here is that he is using every fiber of his being to bring out new life. To see the flourishing and the thriving of another. And leaders who are leading you in the right way, they will devote themselves to the gospel. They will devote themselves to understanding what God has done in Christ and bringing that to you and reminding you of that because they know that that is how you will grow in grace. And then the second part of this is that they will have a fervent love 
for your spiritual growth. Look at what Paul says. Look at how he describes this. He says, My little children, for whom I, I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. Paul's desire for us, his labors, his pain, is that he would press Christ into us so that it forms us in Christ. So if we are hidden in Christ in our justification, and this is kind of where the letter's going next, we are formed in Christ in our sanctification as we become more like him. And both of those happen in the freedom of the gospel, in the knowledge of God, in being known by God. So I want to end this morning by giving you a few questions um, that you can take home with you, that you can just kind of think about, that you can use as kind of diagnostic tools to find where you're at and how you can continue to grow and persevere in the freedom of grace. So the first one is really simple. It's also not a question that anybody likes thinking about. Where are you stuck in idolatry? What resonates more with you? The Greek hedonism or the Jewish legalism? Which one of those has capture of your imagination right now? Do you find yourself kind of pursuing your own pleasure, elevating yourself, putting yourself at the center of all your decision-making? That's hedonism, seeking enjoyment outside of Christ. Or do you find yourself obsessively trying to follow rules of religion, becoming crippled when you can't perform, when you can't live up to those standards, judging others, using your judgments on them to kind of feel superior? Where are you stuck in idolatry? And then the second one, and this is something we should always have in the, at the center of our minds. How are you pursuing knowledge of God? And I'm not talking about just information. Information's part of it, but it has to be information that leads to transformation. It's a relational knowledge. It's knowledge that goes from head to heart and comes out in your work, in what you do. How are you pursuing that? How are you laboring for that? How are you working for it? How are you yearning for it? Pursue it. Do you know that type of knowledge? Do you know how God knows you? And then third, finally, what is your relationship like with your leaders? Would you use the language that Paul uses to characterize it as this warm, sacrificial yearning for the good of each other? Or is there coolness there? Is there manipulation? Is there distance? Is there suspicion? Because you can't do this alone. You need the church. We need each other. And remember this, that yes, this should get to your current leaders, the people that you are currently under the leadership of in your local church. 
But it should also point us back to our relationship with the apostle. Because this, in our day and age, Paul comes under constant attack. People think that he is teaching something very different than Jesus. That his teaching, that his gospel, the gospel he presents, and the teaching that flows out of that is culturally bound. Yeah, it was okay then, but now we have to adapt. We have to, we have to move past it. We have to just reinterpret Paul as to what he would be telling us today. No, no. Paul's heart, as it was expressed for the Gentiles, is also for us. It's the word of God. It is the message that God gave to Paul for you. So fight your heart for it. Pursue it. And then ultimately, Jesus is the one who is leading all of us into the freedom of grace. And so check in on that relationship. How is your walk with Jesus? Is he present? Is he with you? Do you feel and know that he is advocating for you? That he is empowering you? That he is sitting on his throne, sovereign over everything that happens in your life, working it for your good? Trust him. Keep trusting him. Persevere in the freedom of grace. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the advocate that we have in your son. We thank you that as you turn your all-powerful, majestic mind upon us, upon our lives, upon our sin, Lord, that you see your son on the cross, that you hear him calling out that you would be merciful to us. Lord, we thank you that it was your plan to adopt us. It was your desire to know us in that way. And so, God, I ask that you would reassure us of that, that you would give us a fresh experience of it, that we would walk and live our lives according to that knowledge. God, help us, guide us. And, Lord, I ask that all of us in positions of leadership, that we would be reminded that we are following a crucified king, that we are your children. And so, God, I ask that you would give us the mindset of Christ, that we would seek to love and serve our brothers and sisters in those roles, and that we would submit ourselves to the beautiful, wonderful, light yoke of Jesus, that we would be led by him always and forever, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.